0: Blog Talk Radio.
1: Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Crime and Science Radio. We are very pleased to have with us today Douglas White of the National Institute of Standards and Technologies National Software Reference Library. And Doug will be talking to us about vintage computer games, missing aircraft, and an amazing forensic science resource. So, welcome, everyone, and welcome, Doug.
0: Thank you, Janet, Doug. It's an honor and a privilege to have this opportunity. Yeah, Doug, welcome to the show. Uh, We're glad to have you here. It's
2: a fascinating topic. And we're going to talk a little bit about the National Software Reference Library in a bit, but uh, some of our listeners may not know what exactly is NIST. What is it? What does it do?
0: Okay. The National Institute of Standards and Technology was founded in 1901, and it's part of the Department of Commerce. NIST is one of the nation's oldest physical science laboratories, established by by Congress to remove a challenge at the time, which was a second-rate measurement infrastructure that lagged behind the capabilities of many of our economic rivals. The NIST mission is to promote U.S. innovation and industrial competitiveness by advancing measurement science, standards, and technology in ways that enhance economic security and improve our quality of life. And an example pertinent to the NSRL is, since 1905, NIST has produced standard samples, now called standard reference materials, for hundreds of products and materials. Those are used to test the accuracy of various types of machines, such as color sensors, mass spectrometers, fluorescence microscopes, etc. a lot of tools that are used in forensics. Today, NIST produces more than 1,300 different types of SRMs and standard reference data sets, one of which is based on the NSRL. So from the smart power grid to electronic health records to atomic clocks, advanced nanomaterials, computer chips, uh, many products and services rely on technology measurement and standards provided by the National Institute of Standards and Technology.
2: Cool. So it it kind of makes sure all the gadgets work the way they're supposed to work and are reliable and have a... Acceptable error rate, so to speak. Exactly. Yeah. So, how did, tell us about you? How did how did you get involved in all this? And quote, how did you become interested in computer science in the first place?
0: Oh my! Um, <laughs> I, yeah, um, I'd I'd have to say I you know as a kid I liked to construct things, uh, whether it was you know Lego spaceships or you know rocks and sticks in a in a creek you know making a dam as a kid. Or, uh, you know, later doing carpentry work with my dad and grandpa to, uh, you know, going and raiding Radio Shack for parts to fix the radios that people left out on the curb. Um, I was bitten by that bug at a young age. So uh, and also, my, I would think my grandparents' Depression-era mentality of not discarding perfectly fixable things runs deep exactly. in me, too. Exactly. So, you know, don't, don't throw it away. Be a pack rat. uh, but, uh <laughs> So as, as far as computers, my father worked with computers, and, and he'd bring home used paper from the printers, uh, that wide perforated fanfold paper oh, yeah. uh, for, for my brother and me to color on. Um, some people will remember, you know, one side would be plain, and the other side would have the green and white blocks, you know, to help people read the code printed on that side. And at the time, my dad worked on payroll systems written in COBOL. So eventually mm-hmm. I became curious enough to try and read the code, so by the time I made it to elementary school, I could read comic strips and Cobol. <laughs> uh, started young, um, and and then you know in in the late 70s and 80s, I was fortunate. We had uh, an Atari 2600 console, and my dad got me uh, one of the little Timex Sinclair ZX80s to assemble. So it was a kit computer. Um, I had a friend who had an Apple II, and one with a Commodore. My high school had an IBM PC. So I had access to a social group with that shared interest. Uh, and we we wrote all kinds of software for ourselves and shared software on the bulletin boards. Um, then in college, right. I, planned, I planned to go into engineering, architectural engineering. So I had a heavy load of math and computer science. Uh, but in my junior year, I realized that software engineering interested me more than structural engineering. So I took that path. Wow. Well.
1: So what what brought you to NIST?
0: Um, I can precisely say Martha Gray, an alumna (laughs) of my college, Hood College, alerted me to an internship uh, at the then National Computer Systems Library or Laboratory. Um, Now it's called the Information Technology Lab here at NIST. And that was uh, to work on a database metadata standard. Um, Growing up in, in the general area in Maryland, I had a slight knowledge of NIST Uh, And I liked working with databases, and it seemed a great way to get some experience for my next job. That was 30 years ago, and it's Mm -hmm. been wonderful.
1: Now, so did you work outside of college? Did you work anywhere else, or did you pretty much go from college to NIST?
0: I did uh, about a year and a half of contract work for the U.S. Army, um, that was a, an interesting bit of work, actually uh, writing some code uh, with two biological scientists to monitor how fish breathe in different qualities of water. So mm-hmm. you could you could actually put some sensors in, in small fish tanks, and whether a water source was clean or uh, polluted or poisoned, you could actually... Monitor the electrical uh, impulses given off by the fish passing water through their gills to uh, basically estimate the quality of the water. So that was that was actually my first professional coding job. Wow.
1: Well, okay. Um, I actually know somebody. Well, I may know somebody you worked with
0: <laughs>
1: that. Aside, which is no interest our listeners. But hey, folks, you know, there you go. Um, I wanted to um, ask you about, and I hope I'm going to say his name right, Stephen Cabrinetti, or Cabrinetti, how how do you pronounce his name?
0: I've always heard it pronounced Cabrinetti. Cabrinetti, there
1: you go. uh, So tell us about him.
0: So Stephen Cabrinetti was born in August of 1966, which I find interesting because I was born in 1965, So we could be considered contemporaries. Um, He started collecting microcomputer software, hardware, and all the related materials while he was in high school. And he continued that collecting for the rest of his life. So in 1982, he was at Stanford University. He dropped out and founded a company, Superior Software Incorporated, where he was the director of development. And uh, Superior Software actually did release three educational software titles for the Apple II computer in 1982. So then, uh, a little bit later in 1989, Stephen founded the Computer History Institute for the Preservation of Software, whose acronym is CHIPS. Uh, and that was the only nonprofit tax exempt corporation at the time solely dedicated to cataloging microcomputing software. Uh, in 1989, he also created a a community computer lab in Fitchburg, Massachusetts called the Computer Discovery Center uh, with the intention of using the fees and dues to generate income for chips, uh, the preservation of software. So people paid a $30 annual membership fee or paid by the day uh, to use the the facilities of the, the Computer Discovery Center. The equipment in the center enabled users to transfer data from one format to another or to copy software limited to, to shareware and non-copyright materials uh, that Stephen had provided. He also spent his own money, took out bank loans, sought donations, and arranged you know, matching gift programs with local area companies, including Digital Equipment Corporation, DEC, in order to raise funds. So through that, his dream was to create an educational research archive offering a complete and accurate portrayal of the evolutionary trends of the microcomputing industry and preserving original software, hardware, and related materials for future generations to study. The CHIP's business plan uh, delineated his vision and philosophy, and it was the best representation of his long-term expectations for the archive. Unfortunately, he passed away from complications due to Hodgkin's disease on October 4th of 1995 at the age of twenty nine. At the time mm-hmm. of his death there were more than fifty thousand pieces of commercial software in his collection. Wow. And roughly three hundred functioning microcomputer systems.
2: Well what what what's going on with his collection now? What happened to it?
0: So his parents, Patricia and Lawrence Cabernetti, donated the collection to Stanford University Libraries in nineteen ninety eight, three years later. The collection was stored off site with limited access um, and the material was not routinely paged from that off, off-site access. Um, access to the collection uh, was intended to be, remain restricted until it could be moved to Stanford-owned facilities. So the major, actually the majority of the software was placed, still shrink-wrapped, into archival boxes and stored in a climate-controlled warehouse.
1: So... How did NIST become involved with working with Stanford on that collection?
0: It's an interesting question Uh, and interesting story. In February of 2009, then Michael Olson of Stanford University Libraries mentioned the Cabernetti collection to Simpson Garfinkel, who's a respected digital forensics researcher and someone well acquainted with NSRL, at a conference sponsored by the British Library simpson pointed michael to the nsrl as a collection he might find interesting so then in may 2009 i met with michael olson and henry lowood at stanford as part of a trip i was making to the general san francisco bay area i attended a technical conference and had scheduled meetings with a few other organizations such as the computer history museum i had a laptop a floppy drive and some extraneous demo floppies and I showed Michael and Henry an example of our capabilities. Uh, Michael and Henry showed me a few of the historically significant software and hardware items in the collection at the time. Uh, and it was, it was a wonder, wonderful room to, to walk into, it, it just taking that step back you know, 25 years in, into history and seeing some of the old equipment and, and some of the wonderful old packages that, that they did have on site for teaching some of their, their courses Hmm. So after after we evaluated the benefits and the risks and the costs of NIST applying the NSRL processing to the Cabernet software media, Sewell applied for the Standard University libraries applied for a grant from NIST in twenty twelve. They were awarded that grant in twenty thirteen and the rest, as they say, is literally history. <laughs>
1: Well, preserved thanks to to all of you, so I'm just wondering what it was like for you, since as you say you are you're about the same age you were also one of these um you know i i mean i when I went to high school, we had a computer scheduling um we had sort of an alternative it was a public high school, but we had an alternative scheduling thing, and there was a a computer on campus that we nicknamed Vegematic. Um, but I now realize that all the kids who sort of formed the first computer club on there and you know, people like me, first job in college was a key punch operator. We're sort of in a in a generation of, of people who <laughs> made that made that first, you know, walk over from complete paper systems to this whole new new world. So for you, just uh, having been somebody who was part of that you know early early group of of people getting computer engineering degrees and and all that, what was it like for you um to start receiving items from that collection?
0: breathtaking uh, <laughs> literally the the first box that was shipped to NIST was one of the archival boxes taken straight from the warehouse, uh, placed in a protective shipping box, and delivered to us. When it arrived, I took it to our secure facility to check for damage and inventory the contents. And I opened the outer box. I opened the archival box and was face-to-face with 20 or so shrink-wrapped titles from the 1990s. Mm. You know, I, I, I couldn't believe my eyes. You know, <laughs> so I, I, I just, you know, I closed the box Telephone Henry to confirm that yes, NIST should break the seals and go to work. Um, and, uh, uh, and I'm sitting here; I still get goosebumps. I still get goosebumps mm-hmm. telling this story. Uh, it's, it's you know as, as close as you know you can come to you know archaeology and, and you know finding something you know finding a sealed tomb or something. Uh, just just amazing.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh, and
0: I'm I'm perfectly comfortable admitting that there were titles that just sent me reeling with nostalgia. Um, I'm, and I'm glad that after a short period, though, uh, Stanford University's libraries shouldered the responsibility for opening up those pristine items. Um, <laughs> there, there are some stories um, that Charlotte Ty, uh, who was who was uh, the person who was uh, responsible for for paging the the contents out of the out of the warehouse, Charlotte Ty can tell stories about that side of the process. Um, the Cabernet collection. Always had something that challenged us. Uh, sometimes it was an odd physical piece of media. Sometimes it was a previously unencountered file type. Sometimes it was an odd metadata relationship. Uh, we didn't always overcome the challenges, but it was fun to try.
2: Well, tell us tell us about the National uh, Software Reference Library. I mean, what is it, and what's its connection to forensic science? Mm-hmm.
0: The NSRL is the successor to an FBI project called the Known File Filter, or KFF. In the late 1990s, the FBI experienced a very rapid growth in the amount of digital evidence included in their cases. So the FBI contacted NIST in 2000 to collect software and produce file profiles computed from the software into that standard reference data set uh, that I mentioned earlier, the RDS. So in doing so, NIST provides metadata about computer software that is from an unbiased source because we're not law enforcement, we're not a vendor. Uh, it's collected in a transparent manner. We you know are, we share everything that we do uh, as far as procedures. Uh, it's collected in a scientific manner. It's collected in a timely manner, and it's easily used by digital forensics tools. So that's what NIST' involvement brought to. The collaboration. The NSRL has been funded by and directed by a steering committee which is made up of federal state and local law enforcement and also the NIST Special Programs Office with the goal to promote efficient and effective use of computer technology in the investigation of crimes involving computers. The RDS can be used by law enforcement government and industry to review files on a computer by matching file profiles in the RDS. The RDS is a collection of digital signatures of known traceable software applications, so MD5s or SHA-1s, if if people are familiar with those cryptographic signatures. There are application hash values in the hash set that may be considered malicious, so we're not a whitelist. We do have things such as steganography tools and hacking scripts. We do not have hash values of illicit data, such as child abuse images. Uh, nothing that it would be illegal for us to actually keep on campus so the collection actually contains over three or over 30,000 titles and spans everything from operating systems to games on Mac Windows Linux and several other operating systems the steering committee advises NIST on what is most applicable to current casework and NIST works to collect the most popular titles at any given time so for example at the beginning of every year, we make sure we acquire all of the tax preparation software that we can. You know, that's usually when the time of year that, that the updates come out and the new, the new versions. So what we do with everything in the collection is uh, we, we have the, the physical boxes, we have the physical medias on shelves, and we keep those as the base reference uh, of the product of all, all the data that we collect but we use forensic media imaging processes to make copies of the contents of the disks, and we store them on uh, network storage. We have an isolated network, so we have uh, representations, copies, of all of the media images uh, in storage that's available to, to our computers. We also photograph all of the boxes all of the uh, license keys, all of the pieces of media, uh, usually a, a couple of other uh, pages of, of, the, of the manuals that help us with metadata entry. Um, so our, our goal with that is that eventually we don't want to have to go pull something off the shelves. You know, we, can, we can have access to a, a copy of the disk. We can have access to photographs of the ephemera uh, so that we, we never really have to physically handle the, the packages again. Uh-huh. And we're, we're pretty close to that. We're, we're, we're pretty close to being in that you know, completely digital state. But along the way, we've had to adapt. Physical media is less available. Software has changed to online delivery methods and now we collect much of it via downloads. So we're working with delivery mechanisms such as Steam, we're performing installations of software that's continually updated, and we're collecting and processing mobile device apps for Android and iOS. And all of the data that we collect is available for free to anyone, and we work with digital forensics tool vendors to ensure that the data can be imported by third-party tools. Those tools are used by law enforcement Uh, They're used in e-discovery, they're used by antivirus vendors, and they're used by colleges and universities in coursework.
2: Well, I mean, it's easy to see the application of this in forensic science having uh, this type of material available and readily available. But what's the value of this uh, collection outside of the forensic science world?
0: Uh, Part of that question really goes back to Stephen Cabernetti's dream, uh, preserving original materials for future generations to study. Uh, Having worked on the NSRL for 15 years, we've seen generations of technology come and go. We knew early on that we would have to reprocess the collection from time to time to account for new requirements and needs. We did our best to store everything in the most portable forms. We See ourselves as stewards of the collection, doing the best we can right now to allow the next curators to take charge of it in the best condition possible and do things that we can't imagine. You know, when when we started this 15 years ago, um, we could not have imagined that we would be in the position with the collection that we have now. Um, you know, being able to be used by historians, being able to be used uh, by archivists you know so other benefits though um, can be more personal i was contacted by one of niss nobel laureates who realized his speech from the nobel ceremony only existed on an old floppy so mm. we were able to use our hardware to collect the file and a virtual machine to run the historic word processor to convert the content to a portable format for use in the present Um, can you put a value on the corporate history of that speech or on the Nobel history? I don't know. Um, We also have a great story about assisting the Food and Drug Administration to actually save lives when they were unable to open a delivery manifest containing names of people who were given a lethal dose of a substance. We rarely hear about successes due to legal limitations or because we do not hold any clearances, Uh, but the FDA confirmed our help saved lives. And Mm. that's priceless.
1: Yeah. it's pretty amazing. Um, I saw an ad on television a few years ago with these children sitting around with things like Walkmans and being totally stunned by this old tech, um, which made me feel very old. But for those who are running um apps on on smartphones let's let's talk about history because um you know I think there are many of us who um now have um wristwatches that have more <laughs> computing power than our first computers. so what are some of the media that um software uh has been stored on up to now?
0: Oh my! Where to start? Um, we could go all the way back to punch paper tape and punch cards. Um, I think you said you were uh, you were doing some keying. Uh, oh at, yeah! At one time <laughs> um, when uh, I was
1: yeah, <laughs> I was just a baby. No, uh, I was <laughs> when I was a in college. My first one of my first jobs on campus was to to be a key punch operator, and there were ads telling every everybody who wanted to go to school to become one that. That was the future. <laughs>
0: okay. Well, uh, so uh, it, if, it's, if it's confession time, I I was fortunate enough to have used a card reader at college for the last three months of its life, um, <laughs> and I'm glad it wasn't longer. So yeah, I, I had that. Uh, um, I,
1: I remember guys who would, you know, be up all night, you know, finishing up their programs for their classes and drop their trays, uh, you know, <laughs> and bend yeah. one card or. Somewhere in the
2: middle
0: of... <laughs> yep. You just watch yep. watch the emotional breakdown. <laughs> yeah, yeah, i am in there. <laughs> but it's, you know, it, whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger. <laughs> That's all so. they say. Oh, man. Um, otherwise, let's see. So, um, like floppy disks might be the most likely format, you know, some of the kids today might have heard of, um, even if they've never seen one. Um, you still have the save icon in some software still uses like a, a, a floppy disk like icon. Yeah. Um, but they probably wouldn't know about the different sizes, the you know, three and a half inch, five and a quarter and eight inch discs. Um, we've actually got a couple of eight inch drives and some eight inch discs in, in the library. Um, when, when someone of my era walks through, you know, we'll pull those out and everyone gets all, you know, Semi-eyed, and, and you know, thank goodness we don't use it anymore. Um, you know, and so they're not just the sizes, but the densities. You know that uh, you used to be able to hold a whopping, you know, 1.4 meg on a on a floppy disk. That was that was just an immense amount of information. Um, and you know whether or not they were single-sided or double-sided. Uh, actually, the NSRL still has to educate new staff about some of those details from time to time. Um, otherwise, it's it's unlikely they'd know about let's say you know zip discs, jazz discs, um, floptical discs, um, mm. tape, um, you yep. know the big reels on the nine track tape, or or the you know the little digital linear tape cartridges, um, even data cassettes, uh, the cassette tapes that were the you know the size of an iPod that could hold a few programs. Um, although you you mentioned the Walkman so um audio cassettes you know kind of made a, a hipster comeback like vinyl um so they they might have a little bit of familiarity with the with the with the data cassettes mm-hmm. um i wonder how many of them know about the game cartridges that the console systems used um, there's, four, there's been a, a a resurgence you see a lot of retro gaming things in the news but the cartridges real really aren't a, a part of that um I one one recent thing I I took a lot of ribbing from our younger staff when I had to explain we could not allow vacuum cleaner to be used in a certain area because the magnetic field of the motor would damage some of the items you know and at, at that point they just remind me I'm getting old. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well. Um, To kind of switch to a much more serious implication, how did this collection help with the investigation of the crash of Malaysia Airlines flight MH370? Hmm.
0: Um, First, let me state, nobody on the NSRL team has any special clearance. We prefer to be in that situation. Um, Second, (coughs) we've not had any official communication informing us of a specific assistance we might have provided, other than rapidly updating our data set. And this is also a good time to say, if I mention any trade names or company products, that does not imply endorsement or recommendation, nor that the products are necessarily the best available for the purpose. That being said, here's everything we experienced. MH370 disappeared on March 8th, 2014. The timeline of that week is somewhat imprecise, to my knowledge, but on or about March 15th, the existence of a flight simulator in the captain's home was known. Several photos of the simulator were made public. I looked at some of those photos and started researching whether the peripherals might have certain drivers. I had an expectation that our data might play a role in an investigation. Just a a hunch. On March 19th, so 11 days later, it was widely reported that the FBI would be involved with the investigation of the captain's personal flight simulator, receiving a copy of the hard disk. On March 24th, the FBI contacted the NSRL with a request to verify that our data set contained specific versions of two titles of flight simulator software, Microsoft Flight Simulator and X-Plane. We had a complete history of one title, but we were lacking with respect to the other. So we immediately placed rush orders for all the versions we did not have, plus all the map enhancements for both titles. By March 27th, so three days, within three days, we had processed all the media and returned an updated data set to the FBI. On April 2nd of 2014, it was publicly known that the FBI analysts, quote, had finished the review of the flight simulator disk. So rumors circulated, but no further announcements were made. Then, out of the blue, on July 22, 2016, New York Magazine reported that they had obtained a confidential document from the Malaysian police investigation into the disappearance of MH370 that showed that the plane's captain conducted a simulated flight deep into the remote southern Indian Ocean less than a month before the plane vanished under similar circumstances. That document presented findings of the Malaysian police's investigation and revealed that after the plane disappeared in March of 2014, Malaysia turned over to the FBI hard drives that the captain used to record sessions on his home-built flight simulator. The FBI was able to recover six deleted data points that had been stored by the Microsoft Flight Simulator Program in the weeks before MH370 disappeared, according to that document. So, I can attest to the fact that NSRL provided as much data as possible to automate the exclusion of extraneous information. Did it help to focus the analyst's efforts to an appropriate logical location on the disk? Did it help the analyst recognize the six recovered data points as being in that simulator format? I don't know. Hmm.
2: Well, tell us about some of the other things you do at NIST.
0: Oh, I'm coming up (laughs) on 30 years at NIST. Wow. 15 of those with the NSRL. Um, 30 years is is not too uncommon. Um, NIST uh, has had some people 40, 50 year tenures. Um, it, it's a it's a wonderful place to work. Um, but uh, prior to the NSRL, I worked on distributed database standards. I worked on ISDN. Uh, if you if you remember that from the telecommunic telecommunication days. Um, integrated services, digital network, ISDN standards, um, electronic data interchange standards. Uh, I had a good bit of experience with system administration over the years. Um, I think the the highlight of that was I had a front row seat when the Morris Worm ran amok in 1988. I Mm. was was learning to administer some Sun computers when that hit our campus. Um, That was was before we actually uh, had a firewall. We used to be... Uh, completely wide open as as far as the network and uh, those days are long gone um so yeah that that would i think you know when the morris worm hit and you know we had to react to that that really planted the seed of interest in forensics uh, in me although i've really approached it from a system security angle
2: well uh the reference library, uh, the National Software Reference Library. Can anybody get in there and use the material there, or is it only available to certain people, law enforcement, that kind of thing?
0: No, it's it's available to anyone. Um, I do have to say though, we're not a lending library. We're we're not that kind of library. Uh, I didn't name the project. Uh, the The metadata that we publish is is free to download. Um, basically, we say you know the public's taxes paid for the work. We're not going to charge for the results if you know and, and if someone provides a, a five terabyte disk to me uh, we'll even give out our whole database so there's there's a, a lot of metadata that doesn't make it into that standard reference data set um, a because it, it would just make the download immense and, and B because it's, it's a lot of repeated information but you know we'll share everything we have uh, We do not give out copies of disks or files Uh, like I said before we run on an air gap network so we do work with researchers to give them access to copies of our disk images and files in a research environment so someone could work with us to run an algorithm against all the JPEG images or say against all the Microsoft EXE files and we're happy to give a tour to anyone if they're if they're in the D.C. Maryland suburban area.
1: Um, I I know some people who are going to be heading down there as soon as
0: they hear you say this. <laughs> fantastic, fantastic. Yeah, just drop, me, drop me a line. Make sure we're we're in. Um, We'll vacuum the floor that we can, and and happy to have anybody (laughs) stop.
1: (laughs) All right. Not near the magnetic media, but otherwise, yeah. Okay. So you you sort of touched on this earlier, but um, since a lot of software is now only available as download, are we losing the ability to archive materials Um, since there aren't hard copies of a lot of this software in existence? Anywhere, you know, locally anyway. For most people, they're just out there on the um, webs. So, right? Can uh, we can we save it?
0: <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. We we haven't lost the ability. Um, the hard part really is reacting in a timely fashion. Uh, software can be released in extremely short times between versions. In some cases, it's almost perpetually updated. If it's, you know, for example, a, a Steam game, uh, mobile apps are also a great example of fast update cycles. Um, but along with collecting that volume of information comes the burdens of storage, and replication, and fixity. Um, the archival community is accustomed to that requirement. Uh, once you have something, it isn't corrupted or lost, and that you can find it again in your, in your own repository. So uh, no, no, it's um, downloads. We we saw that delivery mechanism coming, and uh, and we're prepared for it.
2: Well, um, just like people stumble on old baseball card collections and old old albums, uh, some of our listeners may not remember what vinyl albums were, <laughs> but they did exist at one time. Well, I imagine people also have some old software games and whatnot uh, sitting around in their garages and attics and stuff. Uh, do you accept donations, and if so, what's your wish list? What would you hope for someone to find in their garage and send to you? Ooh,
0: uh, personally, I would take the vinyl collection. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <but> <laughs> there we there we go with with age again. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, oh my. But yes, yes, we we absolutely we we do take donations. Um, our shipping address is on our website, uh, www.nsrl.nist.gov, um, and I'm sure this will be in the, in the, in the links for the show too. Uh, and in some cases, we might even consider paying for the shipping. Uh, if, it's, if it's a very interesting collection, if it's uh, very unwieldy, um, we've been known to do that. Um, we'll take donations of any commercial software, so please don't, for example, send us your backup tapes. Um, send it in. We have an automated process to identify duplicates. Um, that's easier for us than trying to keep a, a published list current. Um, we like to keep three copies of everything uh, because we're also a test bed for media degradation. So, send it in. You know, chances are you know we can use it. Uh, you never know when it'll, it'll be something we've never seen, or you know it could be that that second or third backup copy. And if we can't use it. We'll find a good home for it elsewhere. We we know some other uh, libraries, some other collections uh, that we could forward our, our extraneous uh, submissions to.
1: Well, for our listeners who are writers, are there things you see in books about uh, computer forensics that drive you crazy, um, and and are there some pitfalls that they should be aware of?
0: Um. No, I can't, I can't say there's anything that would really drive me crazy. Uh, if I read uh, a technical paper or a textbook dealing with computer forensics, a lack of detail might frustrate me, <laughs> but I've always reached out to the authors, and they're usually helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, if, you're, if you're talking about fiction, um, mm-hmm. I think I'm fairly good at suspending disbelief and just enjoying the flow of the story. I, I enjoy a good sci-fi or cyberpunk story, and I take it for what it is. Um, there would have to be an egregious discontinuity, such as a plot to infect an alien ship by using a USB port on that alien ship you know, to, to get me riled up. You know, something like that. Something very blatant. Um,
1: standards are standards, universe-wide.
0: Yeah, uh <laughs> Some some astute listeners might recall a certain Fourth of July type movie uh, where something like that happened. Yeah. Um, but uh, I, I, honestly, I I think my favorite fictional work involving telecommunications protocols is Going Postal by Sir mm-hmm. Terry Pratchett. Um, the clacks are brilliant. And and I don't want to say much more. I don't want to spoil that for anyone.
2: <laughs> right. well, well, Let's say someone wanted to follow in your footsteps and and you know uh, get into as a as a career, get into computer forensics or software archival work. Or, well, what would you suggest? What steps would you think an individual, young individual, starting school um, or a secondary school or, or college, what, what what should they do?
0: That's that, that's a great question. I, I've actually had um, two nephews uh, who, who've asked me about that. Um, it's it's humbling actually to have a, a, a family member, you know, look at you and, and be interested in your in your career. Um, there are many educational institutions offering programs in forensics these days. Uh, it's it's really blossomed. Um, and, uh, there's many offering programs in library information science. And in my experience, the library science fields are learning to include the digital forensics tools. Um, it's been fascinating over, over the past couple of years at, at conferences and, and gatherings to see some of the archivists and curators talking about some of the really down in the weeds, you know, Linux tools that the forensics people use um, and, and, and incorporating those into their workflow. Um, on the flip side, it's not necessarily appropriate for the computer forensics field to include uh, some of the archival and curatorial standards and workflows. Uh, there's a little bit of imba- imbalance there and, and there are reasons for that. Um, so my advice has been you know, determine your area of interest. Uh, speaking for forensics, uh, are you interested in something related to law enforcement and being in the field? Uh, are you interested in something related to the legal side, jurisprudence? Um, are you interested in laboratory analysis or system security? Uh, speaking for the library science side, uh, are you interested in preservation or presentation, um, or even you know, sleuthing for copyright holders? Uh, that can that can be a deep hole to go down. Mm-hmm. Uh, once you once you narrow your interest there are internships and fellowships available um uh, they can be taken advantage of um, uh if if you're if you're able and can join professional organizations such as the American Academy of Forensic Sciences AFS or the American Library Association um do that uh, absolutely do that um You can follow current trends in the field by signing up for news from NIST, uh, as far as forensics goes, or the Library of Congress. There are free resources available for self-training that may help you determine your interests. And network. I have to say, you know, network. You never know what could happen. Um, Like I said earlier, two people from Palo Alto and Monterey, California, met in London, talked about our project in D.C., and lightning struck. Hmm. Well, I would
2: imagine with all the um, interest out there in cybersecurity and cyber warfare and things like that, that that computer forensics and computer sciences are going to attract a lot, a lot more very smart people into the field.
0: Absolutely, absolutely, and I I would put a plug in um, a lot of the very sharp people. Um, that I, I run into uh, related to forensics um, have military experience. Um, don't uh, don't count that out as a career path. Absolutely.
1: Well, as somebody who can spend a long time in a in a virtual room looking around for a clue and not find something that my nephews and nieces could spot in an instant, I was going to ask if you could teach me how to play Miss. Um, <laughs> so I do just have to ask: Is there ever time when you get to just sort of play with this stuff yourself, or or is it all just making sure it doesn't fall apart over <laughs> over time?
0: So uh, we would call that testing. <laughs> um, of course. <laughs> Uh, you you do you do need to verify that the processes you've used do result in in you know a useful you know end uh end product so um actually uh, and and I've I've I think I've showed this off at at a, at a few conferences too um one of the formats that we actually had to deal with with uh, the Cabernet collection was Old original Nintendo cartridges. Wow. So um, we were able to uh, solder a, a, a board with a USB port um, into a, a, an NES console, and uh, that actually allowed us to grab the uh, ROM information from, from the cartridges. Um, but you you actually had to be playing the game. It had to be active, you know, when you when you uh, initiated that, that capture sequence. So uh, honestly, yes, uh, you, you did have to you did have to play uh, you did have to to insert, turn on, start playing, you know, some of these N- Nintendo games to make sure that uh, the chips weren't corrupt. You know, if if you got you know a little ways into a level, you could be fairly certain that you know chances were 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 very good that that you'd get a good capture. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's it's uh, that's a great question. Um, <laughs> it, you know, we do. So uh, uh, I can't. I still have to call it testing. I still have to call it. Testing. <laughs> um, but um, but as, as as you know we don't we don't really have like a a, a reading room type of arrangement so uh, someone couldn't decide to just sort of randomly you know show up and say oh hey you know can you can you fire up mist or can you fire up <laughs> multimate or can you fire up you know you know my you know 1982 tax package um, <laughs> we, yeah we we're we're not really set up to do that. Um, there, there are several universities and organizations that do have that capability, um, mm. but uh, but we don't at this time. Um, however, you know, if if again, if you're going to be in the D.C. area, let me know. Um, we're glad to have anybody come and visit NIST and the NSRL.
1: Well, Doug, well, it's has been uh, really fabulous, um, both a trip down memory lane and a little glimpse into the future all in the same program. Can't ask for more than that. Um, So thank you so much for joining us here. Um, Those of you who want to see links and get information and see the addresses that were mentioned here in the program, just visit CrimeAndScienceRadio.com or visit Doug Lyle's site at com and you can find much more information about the things we were talking about today. Doug, thank you so much for joining us.
2: Absolutely.
0: Well, Janet, Doug, thank you very much for having me.